0: We want to welcome you to worship uh, this morning, uh, it is Easter Sunday uh, and our Lord is risen and I am sure that you are sitting uh, in your home saying he is risen indeed uh, and doing it with great gusto. You know the old devil thought that he could uh, stop Jesus uh, 2,000 years ago on a cross, uh, he thought wrong his God had a plan, he thought he could uh, stop uh, Jesus by putting him in a tomb, uh, That didn't stop him because Jesus had a plan. When you look at our our world today, you would kind of think the devil and his minions is probably uh, thinking that he's gonna slow down uh, Jesus and the gospel with a little virus, but I would tell you that ain't happening because God's got a plan. And even though we can't meet as a church on this uh, grand day, uh, God knows where we are and we meet and we enjoy Easter and we uh, relish in the fact that our Lord lives and we worship him uh, collectively collectively today. Uh, I am glad that you are joining us and I wanna pray for you uh, that this day would uh, bless you uh, as you look at the word of God uh, and renew your hope in the Lord who is indeed risen. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, bow before you, give you thanks for who you are, Uh, how great you are we thank you father for loving us enough to send the son to be our savior we thank you son for being willing to do the bidding and plan of the father to follow that that uh, plan all the way to the cross Uh, and we thank you for defeating sin and death by rising from the grave thank you spirit for being part of that entire resurrection process as well and, and for anointing the church with great power and now we as uh, men and women of God can know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ uh, through the power of the Spirit who resides in us. What an awesome thing. So we worship you this day and pray that our uh, service would be uh, anointed as we look at the word of God. It would be used of you to accomplish your purposes in the lives of those who call themselves saints Uh, and and those who don't know you. uh, Might this be the day that they see the evidence uh, for turning their lives to the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, God frequently uh, calls his people to remember uh, and it's all throughout the scripture where God uh, calls us to do this and uh, the Hebrew word zakar to remember means not just to think about it uh, but to remember with action. A couple of uh, verses will suffice to validate the point that God calls us to remember. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, uh, God says this through the pen of Moses. It says, remember that you too were once slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a strong and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. He says, remember where you came from because God is the one who redeemed you. And as a Christian, you can say, remember where you came from uh, when you weren't a Christian and Jesus redeemed you, Uh, that should move you to the action of loving him more. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse 18, uh, Moses says, remember then the Lord your God, for he is the one who gives you the power to get wealth by fulfilling as he has now done the covenant he swore to your ancestors. He says, you know, God has blessed you, former slaves with great wealth uh, in many different ways, spiritual wealth, material wealth, Don't forget that God has blessed you, Uh, and we can join in that particular uh, uh, word of God that we too are blessed by God with great, great wealth from his good hand. He's blessed us in heavenly places that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. We must remember with great action who God is. Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet Isaiah writes in verse 21, remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you a servant to me, Israel. You shall never be forgotten by me. That's that's who we are uh, to God. We are called to be his servants. And it's all throughout the writings of Paul that we are to be his servants and to serve him until he calls us home. You know, why does God uh, call us to remember? Uh, well, he calls us to remember uh, to... Learn from the past so that we can look at the past of what used to be, who we used to be, uh, and that we can learn from that and become wise and live righteously. He also wants us to remember so that we will remember constantly His greatness uh, and what He has done for us, and that can humble us and then move us to to worship Him in in a greater way. You know, where Easter is concerned, there's a lot to remember. Because uh, Easter is uh, the greatest event in human history. Um, And because it is the greatest event in human history, it is worth remembering uh, and and stopping to think about the significance of Easter. Uh, This particular day uh, gives us uh, two reasons to to remember uh, the significance of it. Number one, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, as the greatest event in history uh, is the condition uh, for salvation of a sinner. It's the condition for the salvation of a sinner. Paul talks about this in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse nine, where he writes, for if you, uh, as a non-Christian, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with his heart, so he's justified. And one confesses with the mouth, and so he's saved. You can see the correlation between belief in uh, the deity of, of Jesus And and his resurrection leads to salvation of the soul. Why is the resurrection to be remembered? It's the condition for the sinner to become a saint. Number two, uh, it is also the foundation uh, for the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news is he came to die and rise again to save sinners from sin. Uh, Many texts support this fact. The best one, I think, is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes this, verse 6. See, he says, for if the dead are not raised and neither has Christ been raised and if Christ has not been raised, whether well, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep is just a euphemism for, for death. Says in verse 19, for if this one life we have hoped in Christ, we are most pitied of all people. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also came through a human being. You know, Adam threw us into sin. Uh, The second Adam, Jesus, did no sin and defeated sin on the cross and through his great resurrection. So we remember Easter, and rightly so, for those two reasons. It is the condition of salvation for a sinner. Number two, it is the utter foundation uh, for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But uh, not everybody believes this. Uh, Not everybody believes those two uh, uh, concepts that I just uh, 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 spoke about. Uh, And there's a variety of reasons why people don't want to believe those two concepts. Truths, number one, uh, is it pragmatically means that if you believe those two concepts, you by definition have to believe that there's a God who exists and he's highly personal uh, and he has communicated to us. And uh, once you do that, well, that, that alters your entire life. Number two, people do not want to embrace those two concepts uh, that they are a sinner in need of a, a savior because they don't wanna call themselves sinners. We're really great in our culture at passing blame on everybody else, but looking at our own lives. So people push back uh, at those two concepts where the re- resurrection's concerned. Number three, uh, to embrace the fact that the resurrection is a condition for salvation uh, and that the resurrection is a foundation for the church means by definition that all, all other religions are, are uh, ipso facto false. They might be full of great people, well-meaning people, loving people, but if, if the gospel of Christ, that he is the resurrected one that defeats sin and death, is that which saves a sinner, then nothing else saves the sinner in any other belief system. So people push back. Uh, there's a lot of reasons, uh, sacred reasons why they do, religious reasons, secular reasons why pe- people push back. Uh, and usually what you find as you uh, look at the world pushing back against the resurrection of Christ, uh, it's a, a battle between two things. Uh, on the one side, they'll, they'll call it fictional. Uh, and on our side, we're calling it factual. It's the, the, the battle between fact and fiction. We must, as we remember the resurrection, understand that entire notion that the resurrection from our perspective of the scriptures and history is highly factual. But we must ask the question, because our culture does, is the the resurrection fiction or fact? Which one is it? Because if it can be logically and historically shown to be fictional, then we might as well uh, choose whatever kind of worldview that we want to and then just enjoy it until we die because there's nothing after death if there's no resurrection. So if you want to be a humanist or buy into nihilism or uh, enjoy materialism and a hedonism or become a really great relativist where there's no truth at all, all things are relative, well, then those would all be viable options if there's no resurrection truth. On the other hand, if the resurrection of Christ um, is highly Factional, not, not a fictional thing. If it's highly uh, factual, then uh, that means that all false belief systems should be immediately dropped and that belief system should be embraced. That means sin should be compa- confessed before the Lord of glory, uh, seeking his uh, forgiveness. Uh, and uh, uh, y- you would want to walk away from your sin to embrace the Lord who has risen to become his child. You see, the resurrection changes everything. Uh, We are called to remember it as Christians as a factual event, but the world pushes back against it to say, oh no, it's it's just highly fictional. And there's many arguments that the world uses, and we as Christians must understand the arguments of the world because uh, so much is at stake. I mean, eternity is at stake. And so it matters greatly what you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we want to look from an apologetic perspective of uh, two arguments, of many arguments that are used in the debate between uh, whether the, the resurrection is a fictional event or a factual event. Uh, And we will look at these arguments and present them to you, Uh, and they lie behind what many people think in our day, and then we will look at them uh, from a perspective of uh, analysis to show whether they're tenable or untenable, to then point people to the truth of the gospel of Christ. Argument number one that uh, stands at the top of the list uh, is basically put together this way. Uh, The resurrection claims to be a miracle, and miracles are impossible. That's the position. Um, Now, I apologize for getting a little philosophical for a moment. Uh, I know not everybody loves philosophy, even though you can't go through a day without dealing with philosophy. But we as Christians, in order to defend the faith and guide people toward the gospel of the Savior, must understand where they come from philosophically. So I introduce you to two people who've done great damage to, uh, or attempted to do great damage uh, to the resurrection uh, concept as being factual. Uh, First up is a a man named Benedict Spinoza, who lived from 1632 to 1677. Uh, He is classified as a rationalist philosopher. And I put, you know, scare quotes around rationalistic thinking. Uh, Was he truly rational? I think not. But his uh, extreme views about God, uh, he was a pantheist, when pantheism means that God is all, uh, caused him to be expelled from Jewish life. They didn't welcome him in the synagogue, uh, but that didn't slow him down. Uh, Spinoza uh, looked at miracles and thought they were completely impossible because the laws of, of the cosmos in his mind are God. Remember, he's a pantheist. And if the laws of the cosmos are God, then there's no way for God to break the very laws of which consists of his being, as it were. So you could take the argument of Spinoza, which becomes foundational of many anti-resurrection uh, philosophies today, and here is how it would break out syllogistically. Number one, he taught that miracles are outright violations of natural laws. Why? Because the natural laws on his mind are they're God. Number two, He then said natural laws are immutable or, in his mind, they're unchangeable. Why? Well, as a pantheist, he's saying that, well, they're God, so therefore they're unchangeable and immutable. Number three, he says it's utterly impossible for immutable laws to be broken ever. And then his summary conclusion is miracles are therefore impossible events. Why? Why are they? Uh, Well, in his logical mind, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ could not happen because it's breaking immutable laws. You must stop and ask yourself, did, did the resurrection of Christ break immutable laws? And are uh, um, laws of the cosmos like gravity, etc. are they uh, immutable, unchangeable? 34 years later in uh, 1711, uh, another philosopher arose that began to tackle uh, miracles. Uh, and his name was uh, David Hume. Uh, he lived from 1711 to 1776. Uh, and Hume was a leader of what was called the Enlightenment, and if ever in my mind there was a misnomer for the name of a movement, this was it. Uh, these men, uh, with Hume at the head, uh, believed that uh, you, should, you should not believe in uh, miraculous activity, you should not believe in faith, which for them was highly illogical, but you should believe in man and his reasoning powers, you should believe in uh, science and the scientific method, uh, not, not what the scriptures have to say. Uh, the late Dr. Norman Geisler, uh, who trained me in apologetics years ago, um, put together Hume's uh, argument, which has uh, affected in, and in infected the world even as we live today with this thinking about miraculous activity. Here's what uh, Hume said, and it sounds similar to Spinoza. He says, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. Two, firm and unalterable experience has established these laws. Three, One who is wise proportions one's belief to the evidence that nothing ever changes. And then lastly, he summarizes a uniform experience amounts to a proof. There is here a direct and full proof from the nature of the fact against the existence of any miracle. What is he saying in all of that? Well, uh, He's saying, as as does Spinoza, because there is no God, by definition, there can't be a miracle because a miracle would be breaking natural law. And he says, as you observe the cosmos around you, nothing ever breaks natural law. Therefore, miracles are impossible. So could Jesus have risen from the grave? Uh, Hume would say no, because to raise himself from the grave would be to break uh, laws, which he said are immutable. Could he have... uh, reverse the medical effects of death. Well, Hume would say that, well, that would be impossible. But that's what the scriptures claim. I mean, think about what happens at death. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody who's died. I have many times uh, and stayed uh, with the, I've been with people waiting for the coroner to come uh, for hours. Uh, what happens at death? Uh, well, just a, a brief perusal of what happens. Uh, at hour one, the muscles relax uh, in a, a state that's classified as a primary flaccidity. The skin begins to sag, the bones begin to show, and the body cools at a rate of two degrees for the first hour, and then one degree for every additional hour. At uh, two to six hours, the blood pools and appears to stain the skin. I've seen that. Many times, as it's not pumping through the body anymore. At three hours, chemical changes within the cells cause the muscles to stiffen from the head, starting with the head down to the feet. At hours seven to 12, rigor mortis at a maximum level kicks in. And after 12 hours, chemical changes within the cells cause massive internal tissue decay. Do you think about this? Because this is what happens at death. And Hume is saying, as we observe what happens at death, uh, there's no way that could be reversed because that would break all known laws. So Perhume, to suggest that one Jewish man uh, in his early 30s uh, who had been crucified, who was placed in a tomb, reversed those inexorable processes uh, a- after being uh, uh, crucified in such a fashion is to divide logic and to fly in the face of all known scientific laws. That's his position, that's the position of many people in our world today, even uh, hundreds of years after Hume. Well, let's analyze it, what these philosophers have had to say, because their teaching Im- impacts and infects people even in our day. Um, both arguments, if you look at them closely, uh, begin with the a priori position that there is no God. That's how they begin. They don't look at the evidence of the cosmos and reason through the evidence there is great probability for a God, they from the very beginning stack the deck by saying there is no God. Well, is that correct to begin an argument that way? I, I don't think so. Because we now have, hundreds of years after Spinoza and Hume, we have a plethora of highly educated people in all fields of science who actually believe uh, that there is great argumentation and great proof for the fact that there is a divine being who's made everything, uh, one of the, the great arguments that those scientists that uh, believe in God uh, propose is called the teleological argument based on the Greek word telos, which means design. Uh, this particular argument takes this form. Remember, Hume and Spinoza said miracles can't happen because there's no God. We must ask, is, is it logical to believe that there's no proof for God? The, the specified complexity of the cosmos shows Likewise. Uh, The argument for this would go in this fashion. Number one, anticipatory design shows an intelligent designer. That's where the evidence points. Two, human life shows anticipatory design. It's like the planet was made for us to show up. Three, hence human life shows an intelligent designer. We have the right oxygen level, the right uh, earth uh, tilt, the right rotation, the right distance from the sun, the right distance from the moon to create tidal action, etc. It looks like the entire cosmos was created for man to live on this planet. Happened by chance? I think not. Uh, Logical minds would look at the evidence and say, this finely tuned cosmos looks like it was designed for man to live here. When you take that teleological argument and you apply it to the field of microbiology, uh, here's how that particular argument pans out. Point number one specified complexity or what we would call irreducible complexity has an intelligent designer if you think of a mousetrap it is a specified complexity at one level but no component of the mousetrap uh, could be missing for it to function correctly it is specific to the mousetrap and it is needed to function and a mousetrap is by no means uh, any, uh, anywhere near as complex as the eye or as the mind the brain etc So, specified complexity has an intelligent designer. When we see something made like a mousetrap, we automatically assumed it didn't assemble itself. Two, life has specified complexity or irreducible complexity. Like, there's no part of your eye that could not uh, be there or in a state of transition and you still be able to see. You need it all, it's specified, it hangs together. Hence, life, by definition of the evidence, has an intelligent designer. You know, I just f- finished reading this book, uh, and because you are at all at home now uh, with COVID-19 uh, and you're, you are you know, telecommuting and a lot of people are at home, I know you're having a wonderful time. You're looking for things to do. Here is a great book to read uh, by John Lennox, a mathematician at Oxford University. Uh, it's called God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God? Uh, I just, finished reading this the other day, uh, and the, I can save you some time. Uh, the answer to the, the question that he brings is uh, no, science has not buried God. In fact, he says science uh, it can be used and should be used to, to verify that there is a God. Uh, in one part of the book, as he talks about uh, the design structure of the cosmos, he quotes a scientist named Michael Denton. Uh, Michael Denton uh, says this, about the tiniest of bacterial cells weighing less than a trillionth of a gram. He, he says this is a veritable microcomputerized micro factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up uh, altogether of 100,000 million atoms, far more complicated, the scientist says, than any machine built by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. I mean, the things that are built like this, the scientist says, are so intricate, the specified complexity is so great, it defies any machine that's ever been made by man. You have two options. It it, it either just happened by itself, or it was designed. Well, I think the evidence in logical thinking leads to the concept that there's a designer. But see, somebody like a Spinoza and somebody like a like a Hume, aren't going to believe that because they are assuming and presupposing from the very beginning not to consider the evidence and just assume there's not a God so they don't have to deal with the cross and the resurrection of Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, years ago, who was an atheist and a very educated man, uh, became a believer uh, based upon uh, the concept of moral law. Uh, If you read uh, Uh, his writings he will tell you how he how he became a Christian because he did not like the Nazis at the time and began to complain about the Nazis and what they were doing uh, to the world and to Jews Uh, he, he hated what they were doing and then one day he asked himself why do I not like them so much if I'm an atheist where did my morality come from and he basically came to the conclusion that well how could he know that their behavior was wrong unless he had an absolute standard how did he know a line was was crooked if he didn't know a straight line and that whole concept of morality caused c.s lewis the atheist to come to know god as his personal savior he went on to say this which i find absolutely amazing he says if we admit god we must admit miracles Indeed, indeed, he says, you have no security against this. That's the bargain. See, this is where Spinoza and Hume uh, are at. They are not wanting to admit God because then they're going to have to worship God. Uh, they don't want to admit that he could exist because if he exists, a miracle could happen like the resurrection. And if that happened in time and space, they would then have to kneel before that Lord that was raised. But C.S. Lewis says it's highly possible for there to be a miracle because... Well, there's evidence that there is a God. You know, what is a miracle? Well, let's uh, analyze it because um, Spinoza and Hume say that a miracle uh, breaks uh, law, uh, immutable law. Uh, here's one a, a definition of, uh, of a miracle. Uh, this is from a, a Norman Geisler's book, Reasons for Belief. He says a miracle transcends but not, does not break natural laws. He says, a magnet overpowers the law of gravity without breaking it by pulling a scrap of iron upward. He said, a miracle overpowers without breaking the laws of nature. It is an exception to a natural law. It's an exception. So if you have a, uh, have a magnet that, uh, if you have a bunch of metal uh, shavings and you're dropping them with your hand down through space and you have a massive magnet off to the side, uh, the law of gravity is going to mean that they're going to fall and hit the ground. But if there's the force of a magnet off to the side, it's going to attract them to the magnet. Uh, it doesn't mean that the law of gravity was broken. It was just superseded by the power of the magnet. See, this is uh, the concept of a miracle. It's not breaking the laws that God made. It's just transcending them and superseding them. Somewhat like a magnet would in a powerful way. Uh, Geyser makes the obvious, obvious conclusion about what he says about a miracle when he says, if God exists... Miracles are possible. If there's a God who created and designed the universe, then he can be involved in his creation anytime he chooses. If God is the source of all natural laws, he can supersede them at any time. No creature can tell the creator that he cannot do what he proposes to do. How easy it would be for God uh, to raise himself from the dead? Easy, because he created the processes of death it would be quite simple for him who is all powerful by definition to just reverse the processes. You know, to deny the existence of God a priori or before the fact uh, is to refuse to truthfully consider the evidence that there just might be a personal God who designed all things and created all things and sent his son to be our savior. You know, Jesus uh, in John chapter 10 makes an amazing statement verse 17 he says this is why the father loves me because i lay down my life for the sh- in order uh, for the sheep in order to take it up again he said no one takes my life from me but i lay it down on my own then he says i have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again this command i have received from my father john chapter 10 jesus says i can lay my life down at will in death and when i'm dead i can pick my life back up again why Because he says, I am God and I've created all the laws that pertain to death and life. You know, once you admit that there's evidence that points to creator, you by definition have to start looking at the resurrection in a different way. Spinoza and Hume have it all wrong. Is it really true that all the the laws of the cosmos are immutable? They're unchangeable? Uh, Spinoza has weighted his argument by saying there is no God. Uh, And because there's no God and the laws are unchangeable, then miracles could not happen. But science merely tells us uh, what laws do naturally by means of observation. It's what scientists do. Science does not tell us what must happen. Science also supplies us with ample evidence that we have every logical reason to believe based on analysis of the evidence and specified complexity. There's a great probability that there's a divine being who created all these things. And once you admit him, as Lewis says, you by definition, once you admit God, have to accept the fact that miracles are highly possible. John uh, became a believer, the disciple of Jesus. It says in John chapter 20, verse six, when Simon Peter arrived after him at the tomb, uh, he went into the tomb and he saw the burial clothes there and the cloth that had been covered his head, uh, not with the burial clothes, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, uh, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, this is John, he saw what he saw inside the tomb and he believed. What did he see? Uh, John looked inside the tomb of Jesus and I was just in that tomb two months ago uh, as I took a trip to Israel with uh, 50 of our people Uh, When inside that tomb, uh, what would they have seen as they stuck their head in there? Well, they would have seen the the mummified grave clothes of Jesus that would have had about 100 pounds of spices uh, wrapped in between them. Uh, They would see them in a shell like a cocoon format with no body in them and they're not unwrapped, meaning Jesus just passed right through them. And they can see the cloth that was on his face neatly uh, folded and laid off to the side. Why did John believe that Jesus was resurrected? Because there's no way a normal man could have done that. He believed in the resurrection. Did Jesus break the laws of the cosmos to resurrect himself? No. He just superseded and transcended them, perhaps in ways we can't even begin to understand. But as God, he could easily do that. Hume... Uh, is wrong from the perspective that he says that uh, uh, miracles are a violation of the laws of nature because Christ was not breaking the laws that he established. He was merely transcending them is what he was doing. What we must be thinking about, is there good evidence to believe that an event could happen in time, in space, that was miraculous? You know, I've played golf, I don't know, for 25 years uh, and I've never had a hole in one i mean i've i 've not even come close uh, but i 've heard stories from friends about guys they 've played with or from friends that have done it who 've been on a par three, shot the the ball, and happened to roll right into the cup and they've they 've got a hole of one i i 've never seen it, but it 's possible it 's possible to happen just because uh uh, I've never seen it doesn't mean that it's, a po- it's impossible to happen. You know, just because I didn't see the resurrection doesn't mean that God could have come to earth, gone to the cross, and, and gone into the tomb and, and raised himself the third day. That's highly possible if God exists. Gary Habermas is a world-class uh, New Testament scholar, uh, and he has a book called The Case for the, the Resurrection of Christ. It's an awesome read. Uh, but he throws out the story of James, the brother of Jesus, Because basically Hume is saying, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, we look at the laws around us and they tell us that miracles don't happen, then since we've never seen it, it couldn't have happened. But James, the brother of Jesus, thought likewise. You know, James uh, was not a believer from what we know from the gospels. Mark chapter three, verse 21 and verse 31, chapter six, verses three to four. You know, Christ's brothers and sisters weren't believers. Why? Who would believe that your oldest brother was God if he claimed to be? That's what Jesus did. So all of his brothers uh, looked askance at, at their brother, Jesus, James included. But James eventually became a believer because when Jesus was resurrected uh, after his crucifixion, it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven that Jesus appeared to his brother, James. Could you imagine that meeting when your older brother, who you had known was crucified and was put into a tomb, appeared to you and spoke to you? I'm going wh- how to how that conversation went see james became a believer and traded his unbelief for belief because he had seen something that defied what he could even begin to understand that his brother that had died was truly alive he by definition then had to be god in the flesh as prophesied i mean how do you get your brother to believe that you're god unless you are god see james went on to be be a persecuted and martyred for his faith he died for the belief that his brother was the messiah the risen savior why he had seen the evidence so the positions of philosophy are not as airtight as they might seem argument number two is that the resurrection is just a clever complex lie it's just a clever complex lie uh, this particular uh, notion is is has been woven throughout our world. People think that Christians just uh, put the resurrection motif together to build Christianity into a new religion. Um, and, and people, by definition, just love uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, and they're all throughout our culture. Just go to the, the web and type in conspiracy theories and see how many things come up. You know, I remember uh, the first moon landing when I was a kid. I was in South Carolina visiting my um, dad's mother, my grandma Lily, Uh, And my dad's 10 sisters and all my cousins. Uh, And on July 20th, 1969, uh, we were sitting in the living room with a bunch of my cousins uh, and my grandma in her rocking chair, little black and white television with the rabbit ears. Uh, And on that day is when they landed on the moon for the first time. You know, who can't remember uh, Neil Armstrong stepping down from the space module and saying that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I mean, we were so excited in the living room. Uh, we couldn't believe what we were getting to watch as history in action. We were just proud to be Americans, and that's when my grandma, the great godly woman, piped up and she said this, as she rocked back and forth on her little chair. She said, "You you boys know that they're not really on the moon," and we looked at her and said, "What are you talking about? Where do you think they are, Grandma?" She said, "Well, they're they're just out, you know, in the desert somewhere of Arizona or somewhere, but they're they're not really on the moon. That that that's impossible." We said, well, grandma, there's all the evidence as to why we, they, that she's really on, they're on the moon. So we had a, a discussion with our grandma who was born in the late 1800s. There was no way she was going to believe they were there. Now I'm not saying that my grandma started the, uh, uh, the theory that they never landed on the moon, which is a huge conspiracy theory today, but she, sh- she certainly started it in the family, um. You know, that particular conspiracy theory is pervasive in our culture. But if you begin to investigate the evidence of it, you will find the weight of the evidence crushes the theory. And and I've read the evidence, which crushes the theory. Because you can't look at all the evidence that's amassed to prove that they landed and not say they actually landed there. It wasn't a lie. They were really there. You know, when you look at the the gospel story, people will say, well, all this resurrection stuff is just a, a really carefully constructed lie well there there is a, a book by uh, j. P. Moreland and uh, Tim muhlhoff uh, it's called the god conversation uh, and it 's basically how to have a conversation with non Christians but they have a great section in there on the conversation with a non Christian uh, concerning like what amounts to truth uh, and they say that uh, there 's five different kinds of lies that can be perpetuated uh, that people do to substantiate a position and we will look at three of those briefly to ask ourselves if the resurrection is a carefully constructed lie, does it match what people do when they lie? So let's look at three of these things. Number one, they say uh, lie tip number one is if you wanna produce a really good lie, then tell lies which will ultimately benefit you. I mean, you you need to get something out of it. I mean, you think about uh, Lance Armstrong. A man of steel in his day and time, uh, he won seven Tour de France titles, uh, the ultimate bike uh, champion. But, but then it was discovered that he won based upon using performance drugs. He quickly lost everything that he had. He lost the $75 million contract with a sponsor. Uh, his life went downhill. But you have to ask yourself, why did Lance lie? Well, the answer's simple. He wanted to win, so he used those drugs to win. Uh, that lie benefited him. You must ask yourself if that's why people lie on some occasions. Well, think about the disciples in, in who supposedly concocted the resurrection lie. How did they benefit from the lie? Uh, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs which lists what happens to the martyrs uh, in the early church. And it starts with the disciples. And I'll just read a a, a partial listing of what happened to the disciples who claimed that Christ was resurrected. James, the son of Zebedee, he was uh, beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Philip was scourged and imprisoned and then crucified. Matthew, the tax collector, was slain in Ethiopia by being uh, killed uh, with uh, with a... Uh, thing that was part half it was half an axe and half a sword they they beat him with it Uh, peter was crucified upside down by nero i mean on and on goes the list in fox's book of martyrs what did the 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 disciples uh, benefit from their lie death martyrdom the only disciple that escaped death through martyrdom was john on patmos but if you read what happened to john Uh, You will understand that Domitian first had him uh, burned in a cauldron of oil before he sent him to Patmos for his imprisonment. All these men didn't benefit from the crucifixion like you would think they would if it was just a lie. No, their deaths ring of truth. They all went to their deaths saying that Christ indeed was the Lord, the resurrected Lord. They had seen him and they died for what they had seen. In Acts chapter two, uh, Peter's preaching after the resurrection of Jesus in verse 29, he says, my brothers, one can confidently say to you about the patriarch David that he died and he was buried and his tomb is in our midst to this day. But since he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would uh, set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that neither... Was he abandoned to the netherworld? Nor did his flesh see corruption. God raised this Jesus. Of all this, we are witnesses. Peter says, "We've all seen him. We've seen him." And the fact that they were all witnesses, and Jesus had appeared to so many people, all those witnesses could be identified and interviewed uh, to see the nature of their person. Were they crazy? What kind of what job did they do, etc.? Paul says, "You can interview us for he's appeared to many, many people as prophesied." by David that the ultimate king, the Messiah, would be able to live forevermore. So the the, the resurrection doesn't look like a clever lie put together to de- benefit the disciples. Number two, if you wanna tell a really great lie, uh, don't give a lot of specific names or places which can be verified. If you have uh, children, uh, especially high school students, uh, and we've all been high school students uh, at some point in life, if, if we're older, uh, you know how this uh, vagary kind of comes, comes into play. Um, conversation might go something like this. Uh, dad will say something like, uh, hey, say, uh, where, did you, uh, where did you guys go tonight? Uh, the student will say, uh, we, we just drove around. Notice, vague. Uh, the dad will then say, uh, well, uh, what did you do when you got to where you were going? Uh, The student will then say, uh, well, you know, man, uh, well, we got there and we just hung out. I mean, on and on goes that which is vague. Because once you start giving specifics, whose house you were at, which people you were with, uh, what restaurants you were at, then the parent began to verify what might have really happened and began to check the facts. You know, the disciples were far from from Vague. They were very explicit. I mean, they even made the bold statement in their writings that a member of the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel, Joseph of Arimathea in Mark chapter 15, verse 42, that he actually became a believer and became part of the, of the crew that took care of the body of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea. You know, if that didn't happen, that specific thing happened, the, anybody could have gone and interviewed Joseph and asked this member of the Sanhedrin, hey, did you, did you become a Christian? but they told the truth about what they had seen by giving specifics all along the way. It smacks not of a lie, but of truth. And lastly, uh, if you want to tell a really good lie, we'll use credible sources to make your lie look all that better, much better. But think about how the disciples started their so-called lie. They begin their so-called lie about the resurrection by saying that Mary Magdalene was the one who shows up at the tomb first to see the resurrected uh, Jesus he wasn't, he wasn't there you know in a, in a Jewish culture dominated by men uh, this is not how you would start that particular testimony if it was a lie you would have put men there first uh, and men of prominence to then validate the the the, the uh, lie that you're trying to propose but the fact that they start with women going to the, the tomb first and seeing Jesus and his resurrection is true uh, tells you by very uh, logical reasoning that they're starting there. Why? Well, it'll be because that's exactly what happened. Uh, the women showed up first and encountered the risen Lord uh, and they become the unusual uh, witnesses to the, the resurrection of Christ. That's a true story, not a false story. See, everything about the resurrection of Jesus doesn't smack of a lie. It smacks of truth. Why does all this matter? Let's go back from whence we started. It matters greatly because eternity hangs in the balance. Because if Christ truly is the resurrected one, as we have seen that all the evidence points to the fact that he is the resurrected one, then is, as I said, the resurrection is the condition for salvation of the soul. As Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Number two, it matters greatly because it is the foundation for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners. And if you attack the foundation, then there is no savior to save sinners from sin. But there's great strength in that foundation because it's built upon truth. The question this uh, Easter is, have you confessed the Lord and Savior as your Lord and Savior? You know, he loved you enough to go to the cross for you to rise the third day. And now today he waits to redeem you, but he's waiting for you to take the first step toward him. And I'm gonna tell you, his arms are gonna be wide open as you come to him. What a great day that will be. And what greater day to be saved than on Easter. So I would uh, challenge you. Uh, get along with God today and, and have a moment of prayer to wrap your arms around him and ask him to forgive you and he shall. And if you're a believer today, rest in the fact that your belief in the resurrection is, uh, is not just a, a thing that's not based upon facts. It's a fictional thing. No, it's heavily factual. And we believe because we reason our way toward the resurrection of, of, the, of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Happy Easter. Have a great day with your family. And I pray God blesses you greatly. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wonder of the cross. Thank you for the wonder of the empty tomb. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. And may this day find us uh, giving you thanks for saving us and giving us the greatest story to be told to the world. And we pray for those who don't know you that this might become the day that they are resurrected spiritually because of their faith in you and Jesus Christ. Amen.